Hello, hello, and welcome back to Sustain. I'm Sydney Murray, and this is a podcast about environmental, social, and economic justice. For today's episode, I'm sitting down with Darren Perry, former chairman of the Northwestern Band of the Shoshone Nation. Darren serves on the board of directors for the American West Heritage Center in Wellsville, Utah. He also serves on the Utah State Museum Board, the Community Advisory Board for the Huntsman Cancer Institute, the Utah Humanities Board, and the PBS Utah Board of Directors. Holy moly, big deal alert. Darren attended the University of Utah and Weber State University and received his bachelor's in secondary education with an emphasis on history. He is the author of a book titled The Bear River Massacre, A Shoshone History, and teaches Native American history at Utah State University. Today, Darren has graciously agreed to share more about the Shoshone Nation's history and way of life that so heavily relies on the well-being of Utah's beloved Great Salt Lake. You know, the Great Salt Lake was in the heart of Shoshone ancestral land. I always look at it as the Great Salt Lake is the heart of, of our existence. In today's episode, we will learn just how vital the health of the lake is to the Shoshone people and what indigenous leaders like Darren are doing to protect it in conjunction with their culture and heritage. So Darren, uh, firstly, it's a pleasure and an honor to be sitting and chatting with you today. Thank you so much for your time. Um, I would love to start with a conversation on the Great Salt Lake and its cultural and historical significance to the Shoshone people. You know, the Great Salt Lake is important for many reasons, but one of the first ones is our creation story happens uh, at Antelope Island and the Great Salt Lake. So... I mean, it's a big, long creation story, but yeah. but to make it brief, uh, two women lived on Antelope Island, and they made a path to, I guess you could say, the land mass over in Davis County, and Sinav, Sinav is the coyote, would come across that land bridge and bring the women two deer every night. And the women would eat the deer and then have children and put the children in a bag, a brown bag. And over time, the bag became very full. And um, the women asked Sinav to take the bag across the water, across on that dry land bridge. And Sinav did one night, and when he got over to the other side where there was dry land, he heard a buzzing sound like bees within this bag. And he was curious as to what was in the bag. And so uh, the women had never told him what was in the bag. But Sinav opened the bag and a bunch of people jumped out and began running in every direction. Sinav hurried and shut the bag up and so no more people would come out. Then he could hear buzzing later on and so he became curious again and opened the bag and more people jumped out. And we believe, and and it was taught to us as youth, that those people that jumped out and ran in all directions from that spot became the Shoshone people. Mm -hmm. And that's how we populated the area, especially the area north of Salt Lake City, which would be uh, Shoshone and ancestral homelands. That is the very short version. (laughs) It goes into much more detail than that. 
and takes actually about a half an hour. <laughs> if you tell it like a tribal elder would tell mm -hmm, it, mm -hmm. it takes about a half an hour. Okay. So you got the reader's <laughs> digest version. Right. I get that And you know, to most people that makes no sense. Mm -hmm. uh, in all of our stories, animals walk and talk. On, they walk on two feet and they talk. Yeah. And, uh, and the coyote is always central to almost every Shoshone story. He's a trickster. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but he's, he's in every story I've ever heard. Wow. So. Hmm. Yeah. Who I was talking to. S oh, no, 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 no. I was not talking to anybody. I was reading, I was reading Robin Wall Kimmerer's Breeding Sweetgrass. And, you know, she shares the, the story, the origin story of the sky woman and, um, the interaction between the turtle and all the other animals and plants. And I don't know, that seems to be a theme in indigenous origin stories, this interaction between the human and the non-human. Yeah. It is, and in fact, my grandmother, getting back to the significance of the lake, uh, so many plants that grew up in, in animal life around the lake mm -hmm. used that ecosystem to survive. And my grandmother always talked about our plant and animal and water kinfolk. Well, if, if you're talking about kinfolk, um, you're talking about a relative, mm -hmm. somebody in your life that is important to you. And so to my grandmother and other indigenous elders, the plants and animals and water are kin. They're as much uh, related to us as any human being that would be related to us. And so what it taught me at an early age that our relationship to those non-human kinfolk needed to be different. And what we do to the environment today by extraction and depletion, we would never do to a relative, right. a close human relative. And so for me, treating the environment in such a way that uh, you make sure that you're not even harming a leaf on a branch or a tree when you pick something, uh, that's the way indigenous people have always looked at the environment. And so, you know, the Great Salt Lake, was in the heart of Shoshone ancestral land. I always look at it as the Great Salt Lake is the heart of, of our existence and how we rely upon our heart to bring blood in and take it out to rejuvenate the body. I, I think the Great Salt Lake plays that important role in Shoshone culture. It's the lifeblood. Uh, water is life. And so it's vitally important that we save her. I mean, yeah, and then you think about, you know, the climate of Utah and, you know, it's being so arid and dry and how much weight that saying that, that quote, water is life has, right? When you're talking about the second driest state in the yeah. country, we can't, you know, we don't live in Florida. Yeah. We don't live in some of those states in the south where my wife's from that mm -hmm. water is not a problem. Mm -hmm. You have other things that are problems, but water would be far from it. But here... If you don't have water, you don't have much. And water is life. Uh, in a state like we live in today, uh, it's vital. Yeah, I, I hear you. I, you know, we hear that saying, water is life, all across the states, all across, around the world. But, you know, me being from Virginia, southeastern region of the United States, we don't hear that so much in terms of, like, the concern of a lack of water, but more so the pollution of the water sources that we have. So moving out here in August was... Uh, different, I guess, in how we talk about water and the concern more so is 
the lack of water, which is, that was eye-opening for me. And you know, I think the state of Utah has done this incredibly good job of manufacturing and engineering water. Yeah. I mean, to take, you know, to build all these dams and, and other places for storage and for irrigation for later on in the summer. Mm -hmm. I mean, imagine not having some of those dams. Right. And, and dams create certain problems for the environment too. But in a state that has limited resource, right. especially water, I think we have squeezed out as much water as is almost available. Right. And maybe even more that should, than is really available. Right for use and I hear the governor talk about uh, having such a good economy we want businesses to locate here. Well, that's okay as long as we can responsibly build the infrastructure to to help these people. Yeah. If the state grows by another million people in the next five to ten years, what are we gonna do with water then? Mm -hmm. And is there enough water to sustain everybody? Mm -hmm. I don't think we, any of us have the answers for that. I was actually reading an article recently and it was talking about, you brought up the dams and you know, they, they, they're along like the Jordan, the Weber, mm -hmm. um, all these rivers that flow into the Salt Lake, um, the Great Salt Lake. But the article is, I can't even remember who it was by, I should look that up, but it was talking about how even with the abundance of snow that we've gotten this year, the question is how much of it will reach the Great Salt Lake because of all these different routes and channels that the, the, the river has been manufactured to like take and stuff. Sure. And, and those dams are empty, right. really. Right. So, then so we have to fill. we're going to fill them up right. first before we allocate any to the Great Salt Lake. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a whole bunch of decisions that need to be made by smart scientists, I hope. Yeah. But I certainly hope that we don't forget the lake in all of this. Yeah. let's shift gears just a little and I really do mean a little because we're not shifting too far you know when talking about the injustices committed against the lake we know that that impacts um, communities that are traditionally marginalized such as indigenous communities so talk to me a little bit more about the environmental injustice component of um, the Great Salt Lake yeah I you know one thing I've learned as I've gotten older and I'm hopefully getting a little wiser. Those who suffer from climate change and, and the changing environment uh, are the most marginalized within our communities. It's the poor communities that suffer the most. And, and look, Shoshone neighborhoods and Shoshone reservations and things like that would be classified as one of the poorest in the country. Right. So um, we can't afford to get out of town when the weather's bad or we can't afford to buy all the water, or buy these, you know, great foods that are mm -hmm. such a high cost now because of climate change. We can't afford those things. We can only afford what we can afford. And so I look at the Great Salt Lake and I look at I look at the resources that our people used. But to see uh, an environment that we relied on for survival for thousands of years to see it mistreated and misused in such a way that it's no longer going to be viable uh, is, is such a big problem for us. Yeah. The Shoshone supermarket was the edge of the water. 
uh, all the plants that grew there were used as food and medicine. Imagine being able to go back and harvesting those plants and again for a food source. And that's something that I'm really passionate about. And we don't have time to talk about it today, but bringing back Shoshone food sovereignty yeah. and what that would look like. Yeah. And so uh, a, a great deal, you know, as far as the plants go, has been lost from that. But a healthy lifestyle, what's going to happen when the lake dries up and we have dust storms of the that the people that don't have anything at all are not going to be able to get away from. We can't move, we can't do other things that would take us away from harmful environments. And so uh, I don't think, I think our governments and leaders are so focused on short-term profits and goals that uh, I don't see, they think they see the big picture like the Iroquois did. The Iroquois leadership didn't make any decisions without considering what effect that decision would have on seven generations ahead. Think about that. Think about if our leaders governed that way, we wouldn't make the same decisions that we're making today. We've got to start thinking about your children, your grandchildren. And, you know, I've lived a life. If I die tomorrow, I've lived a pretty good life and I, I would be happy. But... I'm worried about my children and grandchildren and what life we're leaving them, yeah. what the environment will look like for them and how much water is going to be available for them. Because at the end of the day, we can live without a lot of things, but we're not going to live without water. Yeah, yeah tell me a little bit about this, I'm, I'm correct, Boa Ogoe? Boa Ogai. Ogai. It's okay. Ogai. <laughs> this is a restoration project of some yeah, sort. Yeah, Boa means about. big and Ogai means river okay. in Shoshone. Okay. We never called the Bear River um, the Bear River. Yeah. Uh, settler colonialism changed it to Bear River. Right. Um, yeah. But yeah, I'd love to tell you about that project. We, well, first of all, let me say this. Our tribe was one of the few tribes in the U.S. that did not have a reservation. At all? At all. In 1863, most of our tribe was massacred at what they called the Bear River Massacre. And we believe more than 450 Shoshones lost their life that morning. And uh, those bodies are still there at that site. Um, the sur survivors, which was about 150, uh, ended up joining the Mormon church in a mass baptism. Brigham Young then said to our people, the government came to us and said, we need to move you to a reservation in Idaho called Fort Hall by Pocatello, Idaho. And we're going to move you there with a couple of other tribes. And our chief went to Brigham Young and said, the government wants us to move and what should we do? And Brigham Young said, you're not moving. You stay right where you're living today. And we're going to create a church farm for you. You just joined the church. We're going to teach you our ways. We're going to teach you to ranch and farm and grow crops. So from 1873 on, the, when we got baptized, uh, our tribe lived and worked in, uh, at this farm that was established by the Mormons just north of Tremont, Utah, in northern Utah, and so on I-15. And so 
from 1873 on, uh, we have been assimilated into modern-day culture. And in that culture, it was Mormonism. It was the church. They had moved to Utah in 1847. So our, our experience was different. Not growing up on a reservation gave us many advantages, but it also cost us. It cost us culture, and it cost us language. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we knew of this sacred burial site where our people were massacred, where we wintered every year. Uh, in 2017, we raised $2 million. Okay. And in 2018, I was able to negotiate with one of the landowners, and 550 acres, and we ended up purchasing 550 acres from one landowner. Uh, the significance of that is that the burial site where most people, well, it's not a burial site where the bones were left to rot and are just beneath the surface. That is right in the heart of this 550 acres. So purchasing that land back really gave us the opportunity to protect them. I just got chills. That's so powerful. That's really oh, powerful. Oh my gosh. It's been, it's been the biggest blessing that we could have ever had in our life. And so once we purchased that land, I had a couple of ideas. One was I wanted to build an interpretive center on the site to tell their story. Tell the story of how they lived, what that culture looked like, and how they died at the massacre. Tell the story about a history of a people that uh, has largely been forgotten. I think it's the largest massacre of Native Americans in the history of the United States, and most people have never even heard about it. That tells you that something significant happened within the borders of the U.S. that we really need to highlight and teach about. And, and so for, it was a no-brainer for me to start raising money to build this beautiful interpretive center to tell their story. But as important it is to tell the story of the people, it's equally as important to tell the story of the land. And so in 2018, I went to the Natural Resources Department at Utah State University. I had relationships in that building, and I said to these scientists, I said to two professors, we just purchased the massacre site. I want to restore the land to what it looked like in 1863 using my grandmother's plant diary as a guide. And I said, I'm not a scientist. I don't know if it's feasible. But I know you guys know. Mm -hmm. And so next, the next week, the three of us went to the site and went on a plant walk. Uh, we did an inventory of what plants are there, what plants shouldn't be there that were invasive, and what plants we need to bring back. And what started in 2018 is this idea of not only telling the story of the people, but telling the story of the land by healing Mother Earth, by bringing back what she had always had there, um, became such an important part of what I wanted to do. And my gosh, we've, I've raised over $7 million in the last uh, couple of years for land restoration. And what we're doing there, we're taking out all the invasive trees Russian olives. There's a half a million Russian olives wow. on the site. 
the scientists tell me that one mature Russian olive takes up about 50 to 70 gallons of water a day. Wow. A day? A day. Wow. Okay. A day. Okay. And that blows my mind. I, I really can't understand that. Now you do the math, you're going, well, there's a half a million of them. What if we get rid of all those Russian olives? What water savings uh, yeah. are there that will actually just go back into the Bear River? Because it's on the Bear River anyway. Okay. And so we started taking out Russian olives and we'll be taking them out for the next two years by the time we get done. But not only that, we're replanting cottonwoods and willows. We're, re, we're cleaning up a, a stream bed that was, we called it Beaver Creek. Uh, after the massacre, the pioneers changed the name to Battle Creek. Okay. Today, if you look at Battle Creek, it looks like chocolate milk. Mm -hmm. It's just not a very pretty sight to look at the water mm -hmm. color. Mm -hmm. uh, the science adaption people and the water quality people at Utah State are in there working with and advising us on how we can clean it up. And to clean it up to the point that we will eventually reintroduce the Bonneville cutthroat trout back into that fishery. And so what we're doing at Bear River, we're reintroducing beaver into the ecosystem because beaver builds dams and it slows the flow, it spreads and it sinks. That's where you start cleaning up waterways. And so what we're doing there is, is we're working with local farmers because they're going to have to change some farming techniques. But you know what? There's modern new ways of doing things that are more environmentally friendly. And, you know, farmers just get in the habit of doing things because that's how Grandpa did it. Yeah. But there's other ways. And, and the science community at Utah State is helping us re-educate some of these farmers doing it a different way that's actually more efficient mm -hmm. and they can actually make more money off their crop. It requires not only our knowledge but buy-in from right. landowners. Right. That collaboration, Robin Wall says in her book, and I love this, uh, it's my Bible actually, you know, you can't braid sweetgrass alone and it takes a collaborative effort to do things but when you bring people together, things can heal. And that's what we're doing. We're healing the Bear River. We're healing that watershed. We're doing things on the land to bring back wildlife and birds and uh, trout and other things, which will, we're developing a trail system through there cool. that people can go through and with interpretive signage that will say, this is a chokecherry bush yeah. and this was used this way historically as a food source. And, I feel like also a big part of that, like learning, is you can't care about something unless you know about it, right? Right. And so all of these interpretive signs that we see on these trails, they don't, they don't depict the accurate history. They don't depict the accurate landscape. And so True. I feel like this will be really good in terms of educating people. Like, Absolutely, yeah. in a different way. Right. So, and that, that's important to us because those are our plant mm -hmm. uh, kinfolk. Mm -hmm. What we're doing will literally have a long-lasting impact on the future of the Bear River, putting more and cleaner water back into the Bear River, which, if we're doing that, will make its way to the lake. Right. And so, you know, when Brooke asked me to give a lecture here at the University of Utah, uh, I titled it, Healing the Bear River, Healing the Great Salt Lake. Mm -hmm. 
because uh, we can do both with what we're doing in the project. Mm-hmm. That we can, folks. That we can. Darren's insights on the interconnectedness of human and non-human environments are so important, especially for indigenous communities whose ancestral ways of living are tied directly to land. Too often, we hear of environmental activism initiatives that fail to recognize these interconnected ties, leaving poor and marginalized communities, such as the Shoshone peoples of Utah, further disadvantaged and left out from solution-making conversations. Restoration projects like Boa Agai demonstrate the value of what is known as bottom-up activism, where those who are impacted the most by climate change are the ones leading environmental justice initiatives. In this way, solutions are truly created for the people, by the people. And notions of deficit-based approaches and activism are more easily avoided, leaving those marginalized communities with a sense of self-determination, pride, and active resiliency in the fight against climate change. You're listening to Sustain, a podcast by the University of Utah Sustainability Office. For monthly episodes, subscribe to Sustain on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. To learn more about our work, visit sustainability.utah.edu or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Sustainable U of U. Interviews and editing of this podcast episode were done by me, your host, Sydney Murray. The music in this podcast is provided by Envato.com.